0: Some of you are familiar with the author John Steinbeck, who once wrote a letter to the diplomat Adlai Stevenson, uh, which was later published in the uh, Washington Post in 1960. Steinbeck wrote these harrowing and prophetic words. A strange species we are. We can survive through anything God and nature can throw at us except one thing, having plenty. If I wanted to destroy this nation, I would give it too much. And then I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. Harrowing words from Steinbeck. I think James would agree with him. You know, some would say that James in this particular passage, and we're in the middle of the, toward the end actually, of a sermon series through the epistle of James, some would say that James is offering his readers a come to Jesus moment. Have you ever heard that phrase? I mean, it's a new turn of phrase. It basically means, I'm going to whap you upside the head with a little truth. Um, right, I'm going to be a little curt, a little abrupt, a little rude, in fact, to give you a bit of a wake-up call, I actually um, like how the the reader, I think it was Ransom, but I'm not sure, the reader uh, read the the lesson tonight because it it has energy to it, yeah? There's a tone to this, yeah? And it's important that we're faithful not only to the words of Scripture, but the tone of Scripture, and the tone of this particular text is a little Old Testament prophet-y, a little aggressive. Uh, And notice how many times he uses the word you. I mean, he's really pelting us again and again. He's trying to sober us, though. You know, when Scripture talks like this, it's actually not to hurt you. It's so that you wake up so that you don't end up hurting yourself. Yeah. So St. James uh, begins with these not-so-tepid words, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, we can do a variety of things with difficult biblical texts. We can um, reject them. You know, it's not about me. We can project them. It's not about me, but it is about her. Uh, or we could simply say, oh, okay, over to you. And just receive it. Receive it. Even if it's hard, receive it. By the way, most of the growth that's happened in your life and in mine came from words that were not wanted initially. Right? The foreign element. The upside-down truth, the thing that seemed to rock your world, that's the thing that helped you the most, and that's what James is trying to convey tonight. So hopefully that will come across in what I say and in the tone in which I say it. I want to talk about three things tonight in relation to this um, passage, and yes, there's a little alliteration here, so pardon me. Uh, The first is the passing of wealth, the second is the piling of wealth, and the third is the peril of wealth. But I want to talk about the passing of wealth, that is, wealth's temporal nature, Uh, It's 100% temporal nature. James uh, James underscores the point in verse 2. Please follow along with me in your bulletins. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Uh, I mean, I really want you to... Think about the gravity of what he's saying here. I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer, like, of course, nothing lasts forever. You know. But let's think about that. How many hours, weeks, months, years, tears, blood, sweat do we pour into things that have no ultimate future? Haven't you ever given yourself sacrificially to a job because you let it be too important? You let it be a demigod? And you gave yourself, you sacrificed like you were giving away your firstborn, you know. You gave so much of your energy to this thing only for it to collapse on you or seek after your own blood later on. Well, he's saying that all of these things that you work for and that you hoard away, um, they all expire. They expire. By the way, isn't it wonderful how in the book of James, James isn't inventing this stuff whole cloth. He's basically just quoting the Sermon on the Mount, By the way, if you read the epistle of James and you read the teachings of Jesus, especially the ethical ones that are found in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find an amazing degree of overlap. Why? It's almost like they knew each other, right? I mean, James is likely the brother of Jesus, and so they had conversations from time to time. Uh, And there's an awareness there. And so he's copying what Jesus said about moth and rust that corrupt and thieves. You know, they break in and destroy. That's why Jesus was very concerned um, where people put their priorities. Jesus believed that some things last forever and some things don't. That's the Bible view of the world. There are some things that only last a little while, so you enjoy them for while they're here for a little while. But there are some things that last forever, and those things are more important. Um, uh, So what passes away? Teslas are so good, you know. They don't last forever. Um, those cars that are hybrids that are supposed to cost you less but cost you more, they, um, they don't last forever. Um, the, the committee that you're on that you despise, it will disband in two years, and then you'll be free. Um, even, even the things that we treasure the most in life, like friendships and marriage, you know, those things end at death in a way, right? They don't last forever. But there are some things that last forever. Um, you're sitting next to them, Right? You're made in the image of God, and that image doesn't die. It persists into the next life. You last forever. All of the virtues that accompany the gospel about love and mercy and, and, and true power, all those things last forever. And ultimately, the source of all things lasts forever forever. Um, Sometimes we confuse the two, but some things pass away, some things last forever. You may remember that Jesus caused a great deal of scandal with this bifurcation whenever a, a man who was a paralytic was brought to him through breaking and entering. People tore the heck out of a ceiling, dropped this guy down, and Jesus looks at him, and he doesn't say, you're healed. The first thing he says is what? son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't come there for a priest, you know. He didn't come there for an absolution. But Jesus knew that this man's evident problem was not his most pressing problem. The quadriplegic, as serious as that is, had an even more pressing problem, which was an eternal problem that had to do with reconciliation and pardon. So he deals with that first, the eternal, and then the temporal, yeah? Uh, And so, James is saying that a lot of these things that you're putting too much emotional stock in pass away. This is what we do, by the way. We treat wealth like an eternal God. We treat it like an eternal God. We treat temporary things with eternal significance. But that's what idolatry is. What is idolatry? Bad expectations. Bad expectations. It's when you expect wealth to provide eternal success and immutable security. Yeah? Putting those those connotations of deity on something that can't bear them, bear the weight of that expectation. Because see the thing is when James is writing these words, what's my initial thought, my instinctive thought? It's this doesn't relate to me because I'm not rich. I'm not rich. I mean, compared to the rest of human history, yeah. Like, I'm, uh, let's say I'm doing all right, you know. Um, but like in our current contemporary context, man, I'm not rich, so I, you know, I don't really have a problem. Wealth doesn't really lure me. I don't really worship dollar bills at night. Like, I don't have an altar to you know the the, the fancy presidents on the bigger bills. I don't. I don't buy designer clothing, and I don't. Even though I like Tesla's, so I don't have a fixation. Uh, you know. But I want to say to all of us, including myself, idolatry. I, I, idolizing wealth or expecting wealth to do more than it can, expecting a, a deity nature from wealth isn't ever obvious at the beginning. Idolatry never is. It's sneaky, surreptitious, uh, subtle, and sexy. That's why it sells. You can barely notice it at first. I know. Uh, by the way, this came... Uh, home to me again when I was visiting the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. They have a wonderful Sumerian exhibit, and they have an Egyptian exhibit. And I think we have the wrong idea about ancient idolatry. We think ancient idolatry means that people went to large temples, and a lot of them did, and fell down before 500-foot statues of, you know, Zeus or something, and all worshipped. And that's idolatry. Yes, those kind of things happened, not with 500-foot statues, but with large statues. Most idols in the ancient world were small enough to fit in the palm of your hand hand. They were stitched inside people's clothing, hidden against the heart on purpose to show your heart's dedication and devotion to that which only you could see. It was a very privatized kind of religion, idolatry, very often hidden from the watching eyes of the world. When I went to the museum, they had cases upon cases of these little tiny idols of Artemis and Dionysus and all the rest of them and Baal and Asherah that you could carry right next to your heart right? That's the way idolatry always starts, tiny, insignificant. So it could be just this longing, this craving, this nail-biting for the newest tech. You know, I need the iPhone 13 or I'll die. Or Ferragamo shoes. I just met, I met um, a woman the other day who said, God really delivered me. I said, from what? She's like, I really wanted those $500 Ferragamo shoes, but I went to pay less instead. I thought, well, that's a deliverance of its own way, in its own way. Um, <laughs> Or maybe you're obsessed with fuel efficiency. I meet a lot of guys who are obsessed with fuel efficient cars. Why? Because they can save like $8 a month, you know, at the gas station. Um, Or the canceling of debt, friends. Like, I believe in the canceling of debt. I don't want to live in debt. But I meet some people that obsess so much over the cancellation of debt that it becomes an absolute idol. It has the priority over the family. Yeah? Uh, Or it could be, you know, your Instagram persona. You know, you buy all the clothes and you pose in the right way to give yourself sort of a second factor or a certain dignity. Or you're constantly worrying about money because you think money's going to shield you from any bad thing that could happen, yeah? Or you lust after the power that wealth provides. But that's all just idolatry, you know? I feel it. You might feel it too, but it's idolatry. It's when you treat temporary wealth with the attributes of an eternal God, that this is going to really solve most of my problems most of the time. Yeah, so James is underscoring the point. These things rot, they are moth-eaten, they corrode, and then that corrosion turns on you. We'll get to that in a bit. But the passing of wealth, point two, the piling of wealth Uh, So he says this in verse 3. Please follow along. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Two complaints against those who stockpile money. One, they live in selfish indulgence. And two, they are unjust laborers to those who are working, to those who are poor uh, and struggling under um, economic distress. Now, I only want to comment about the second point, that is economic injustice. By the way, speaking about economic injustice in church doesn't make you a liberal. It makes you biblical, because the scripture is rife with data about the unjust treatment of those who struggle. Like, right under idolatry and grumbling, it's like the Top one, it's in the top three of sins in the Old Testament, and it's frequently mentioned in the New Testament. Um, and notice, notice God's attentiveness to it in this passage. Do you see God? Did, did you, you know, get a vision of God's ears in this passage? What are God's ears hearing? God's ears in this passage hear the harvesters, that is, the low-level employees who break their backs in the fields all the time, you know, who sweat a lot at work. He hears them um, as they, you know, amass their credit card debt because they have no other alternatives because they keep being ripped off and nickeled and dimed by those who are supposed to care for their well-being, that is, their employers, yeah? Um, This has, like, an ancient... A memory source to it. And it goes back, it's even earlier than this, but there's a big moment of God's hearing in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 uh, is all about Moses' encounter of the divine theophany at the burning bush, right, where God uh, um, appears in that bizarre form to Moses and calls him to lead the Israelites out of enslavement in Egypt into liberation. And what does God say about his auditory senses at that point. I have heard the cries of my people, and I have come down. When you hear that, like. It's not going to be pretty for certain people. Like, watch out. If you want God to come down with ferocity in the biblical record, um, here's what we should do. If we want that, if we want the ferocity and immediacy of the Lord, pile up wealth, live in selfish indulgence, and don't care about anybody else. And in fact, make people's lives worse because of because of how you hoard, of how selfish you are, of how you might abuse those who struggle through neglect or through deliberate suppression. Like, do that and see what the Lord does. There's a biblical response. There's a godly response to that kind of thing throughout the biblical record, and here we read of it in James. Um, John Calvin very helpfully in this passage says this about Um, About finances. Calvin says, God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moths, but he has designed them as aids and helps to human life, and they ought to be used as such. Meaning, there are better things these things can be used, better ends these things can be used for than withering away. You can actually lift people out of degradation and harm and panic attacks and um, and all sorts of sin that people are driven to because of poverty. Like you can reorganize your financial life in such a way that you help lift people out out of practical misery, that day by day their lives are actually better rather than worse because of you. So Calvin says you can use these things toward redemptive ends. That's how wealth is to be thought of. It's a tool to relieve pain. That's what wealth is. It is a tool to relieve pain, not just for us, but for others. Remember, the biblical flow of blessing is always to you and then through you. It's not just to you and to you, it's to you and then through you. Why does God bless Abraham? To bless all nations. Yeah. The same same thing happens when god blesses you yeah and so um i, I was funny i uh i was uh, thinking about a conversation i had with a woman i believe in 2009 she was opining the fact that she was doing the budget around pledge time her family budget and she said ethan i was very ashamed of something she's a very spiritually deep person she said look i realized that i have this this bougie dog food for my dog because i spoil my dog and i was spending more on bougie dog food than i was to um, the church And there's something weird about that, right? I'm like, well, you know, maybe. Um, But I I like that she was open about it and wanted to talk about it and realized that her whole financial understanding needed to change. She's like, I need to give more to kingdom work. I love my dog, but come on. You know, it was good. Healthy thought, healthy thought. So the passing of wealth, the piling of wealth, And lastly, the peril of wealth. He talks about this in verse 3 and in verse 5. Notice the aggressive language here in verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So there's that. And then verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What he's saying is that wealth can be lethal. He likens it to acid, right, or that corrodes us, and to pig slop of the soul, right? It fattens you up for the day of slaughter. It fattens your heart up. It fattens your desires and deforms them into this bloated thing, right? And it makes you um, a perfect candidate for the day of slaughter. I mean, his words, not mine. Uh, so what he's saying is that wealth is not some unbridled good. You know, sometimes we think that the more we have of it, the less we'll suffer, But again, he's piggybacking on the themes of Jesus because Jesus said um, that it is... I didn't invent this stuff. I mean, I wouldn't have said it, but um, but in... In long retrospect, I'm glad Jesus did, that it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because wealth can very easily become a narcotic that numbs us out to the true desperate state of our bodies as well as our souls. Because you know if you amass yourself in comfort, you can numb out for three decades and not really think about your eternality. You can really not think about your spiritual condition because you're constantly satiated, yes? And so, uh, so James and Jesus warn us about uh, wealth, saying that it sometimes can make us forget that in the grand scheme of things, all of us, every single person here, no matter how much you make, no matter how much your station, no matter what your last name is, we are all poor, weak, and needy. We are poor, weak, and needy, all of the time. That's the human condition. Uh, by the way, I found fascinating agreement regarding the perils of wealth in some ironic sources. Uh, to quote uh, Bernie Sanders in the Millionaires and Billionaires, I, I I I that was really funny what I just did. But I um <laughs> I will uh, I it was a very um, compelling um uh you know impression. But here are some of them. W. H. Vanderbilt said the care. Of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. I've learned there's no pleasure in it. J.D. Rockefeller, I have made many millions, but they have brought me absolutely no happiness. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. And Henry Ford, I was happier when I was a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> Their point, James's ultimate point, wealth itself can be perilous when it meets an idle, hungry heart. And remember, Calvin said the heart is an idle factory. Um, Now, some people will protest at this point, and I understand the protest. There's legitimacy to it. Ethan, they'll say, wealth itself isn't the problem. It's the heart that's the problem because it loves wealth too much. And if we stop loving wealth, everything will be fine. Now, there's a lot of truth to that, right? The heart is the heart of the matter. The heart is the problem. And it is quite obvious to me that not all rich people are bad and selfish, and not all poor people are virtuous and selfless. But that opinion that it has nothing to do with money, it's all about the condition of the heart always and only, I think there's some naivete built into that. A little naivete. Because the heart is the primary issue, but it's not the only one. It's like saying to an alcoholic, you know, it's really fine if you spend every evening at the bar around people that are drinking heavily because the problem is just your own heart, not your environment. But alcoholics, as you know, can be very easily triggered by environment right? The environment isn't everything, but it does matter. Uh, the same, I think, can be true with those of us who crave certain forms or appearances of wealth. We can be very easily triggered. I'll tell you how in my own experience. Uh, when, when I was going to college at, e- Eastern U- at Eastern University, we were a stone's throw away from King of Prussia, if you know where that is. King of Prussia is only famous for one reason, It has a big mall there. It's like the third largest mall in the country, insofar as I can recall. And uh, it has all the nice stores, right? It has Neiman Marcus and very, very fancy swanky stores that I could never afford. We had a woman in our parish there who was in terrible debt because she said, um, and she said, I can't even go to that mall anymore. I can't even park anywhere near it because if I do, I will max out every credit card I have because I want the image that they're selling me. Yeah? It was a triggering environment, And so all I'm saying is, let's not be naive about our weaknesses if we have particular weaknesses toward appearance uh, of wealth or actual wealth. Um, And so uh, that's something, friends, about the passing of wealth, the piling of wealth, and the peril of wealth. Um, And I um, want to say this is what idolatry is and what idolatry does. Idolatry is the existential elevation of the gift over the giver of substance over the source, of the creature over the creator. And idolatry runs in a fallen bloodstream, and it can malform us over time, begins subtly, like a little idol against your heart, but can grow more and more in its dominance, and that's what it wants. Now, I could end here, end the sermon here, and just say, don't do it, but then you wouldn't be coming to Grace Anglican Church. Because the thing is, we can't stop here because we're Christians. And the answer is always Jesus. We have to get to the gospel. We have to get to some good news. And James knew that. James knew that. Here's the thing. The cure for the wealth obsessed, the image obsessed, the power obsessed, the cure for our secret or not-so-secret idolatry is to have a true come-to-Jesus moment. Now, I, I don't like how the language of come to Jesus is used because it usually means that it's, it only means that you're put in pain. But um, our come to Jesus moment is not a punch to the face, but an invitation to healing. Here's the warning. Now here's the opportunity for you to get well, to be okay on the inside to not feel so dark inside all the time. Here's the invitation, the come-to-Jesus invitation to rediscover the giver. Not just the gifts, as great as they are, but the giver, the source, the generous source at the very center of all reality. Because God's essence could be described as generosity. As generosity. You know, the evidence for that is Jesus himself. After all, in Jesus Christ, the highest became the lowest, the richest became comparatively the poorest, the mightiest became the weakest, reduced to the corpse of the cross. He gave us everything he had. He gave it all away. He gave his wisdom, his attentiveness, his compassion, his love, his miraculous power, his healing presence, his pardon, and his eternality. All of the wealth that he could offer, he offered. Put it all on the line, even to the point of death. Or to quote the hymn that we sing every Advent, he who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, becamest poor. We need to come-to-Jesus moment, but that's the Jesus we come to, the one who was generously loving. Um, we would all say to a fault, because none of us have loved that way, but generously loving to the nth degree. Um, we come to the one who gives himself until he dies from it. That is the only thing that can change the heart. Yeah. So one of the most generous people I know, and he's a professor, posted this bold public confession on his office door. I asked him if I could read it. I didn't identify him, but I am going to read it because he said I could. This is what he says, and it relates very directly. He's, he writes, with humility and honesty, I struggle with greed. Like all complex human behaviors, greed is surely inheritable. Thus, I was probably born with a propensity for greed, and greediness is likely uh, evolutionarily adaptive. I am often loving in my greed, in that I want to give large sums of money to help others. I have fantasized about making it possible for no Grove City College student to need student loans uh, and delivering people from all poverty. Of course, I never fantasize about giving it all away. I want to be generous just without pain. Uh, Despite the inborn nature of greed and the positive aspects to my greediness, I know that greed is sinful. I refuse to do hermeneutical gymnastics to to conclude that my greed is good. Thanks be to God who forgives my sins and leads me in the process of sanctification, I know that one day, whether in this life or the next, I will be set free from this sinful temptation. Until that day, I strive to resist the devil that he might flee from me. It's good. That's the kingdom of heaven, like a thief in the night, breaking into our ashrams of gilded idols, upsetting our old systems of thinking and processing and feeling in order to set up shop and bring a little redemption and kingdom freedom. So I invite you this very night to consider how much heart space is taken up by the pursuit of things that corrode and crack. And then I invite you to have a come-to-Jesus moment so that you'll know a little more pardon and peace in your life. And then I invite you, quite frankly, to get a little zany, to get a little wild, a little extravagant, because who cares about all this, like, worldly cobweb crap? Who cares? So if you have five cars, sell one of them and give the proceeds to the church. Give money anonymously to families who lack good jobs and aren't the best neighbors and yell too loudly at 9 p.m. Delete your stupid Instagram account that shows off your body and all your material success. Take your Ferragamo shoes and sell them on eBay and then buy pizzas for everyone on your block. Actually, everyone in Grove City. <laughs> <All right? laughs> Give to people. They're the only ones who are going to last forever. Give to real people and to the ends of the gospel to ensure that people's forever is good. And then you'll be like your Christ who gave it all for you and for me. Remember what Cardinal Biafee said in an astonishingly simple way. We are all miserable wretches whom God has brought together to form an absolutely beautiful church. Amen. They could not take your